0: This is At The Table, a play reading series by Charging Moose Media.
1: Welcome to uh, At The Table. Hello, gang. We uh, we have kind of a different setup today. We're trying something new on At The Table because of uh, pretty cool employment, which we'll get into pretty quick. So uh, I'm here in Maine, actually. I'm up about uh, seven hours north of New York City. Rachel, where are you?
2: I am in Dayton, Ohio, which is the first time I've pronounced that middle T. It's Dayton, it's Dayton, Ohio. <laughs>
1: and, and why are you in Dayton, Ohio?
2: Well, I'm working on some new theater, Ned. I am doing a brand new musical, the American premiere of a musical called Legendale by composer Andrea Daly and librettist, uh, lyricist Jeff Beanstock, And uh, they created this new musical Legendale, which got its Danish premiere last year. And I'm in the American (laughs) premiere (laughs) this year of a a musical about video games, uh, which is,
1: wait, what? uh,
2: Yeah. Yeah, man. And it's, it's a gamer musical with projections and turntables and moving pieces and explosions. I'm, I'm pretty damn happy, and my actor housing came with a PS3, which I thought was really lovely. Of that's
1: them. that's super cute. I'm I literally yeah. took a break from playing Zelda: Breath of the Wild for this interview, so that's really exciting to me.
2: So that's what I'm that's what I'm here doing, and I'm actually back in New York in about a week and a half, which will be very exciting because I need 2 a.m. food is the thing I'm realizing about myself. Okay. And uh, but what are you doing up in Maine?
1: I am a, I am running an artists retreat at a house on the the coast of Maine, in the middle of the woods, on a large private beach. Uh, I've got a, a, a songwriter with us right now. Well, he's not with us like on the podcast, but he's in the house. Uh, and uh, for the next couple months, I'm going to be living up here, making some cool art, producing some cool Charging Moose stuff, which I'm sure your social media will get flooded on. But there's a third person on this call right now. Much
2: more interesting than the two of us. The playwright, we're so thrilled to have. Uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is great.
2: Tell, tell, can you tell everybody
3: who you are? Sure, I'm Leah Romeo. I'm a playwright. Um, I am also a lot of other things. I am um, I have been a novelist and a humor book author at various times. I'm a literary manager and associate artistic director of a company in the city. I also do literary stuff for a company in New Jersey. Um, I also teach playwriting. I'm on the faculty at Fairleigh Dickinson. And I also write standardized test questions for educational testing service. That's my day job.
2: That's a lot of hats.
3: Yeah, I lose track of things sometimes, but I'm doing (laughs) the best.
2: And how long have you been playwriting specifically?
3: Well, since high school, I guess. I've been doing it. Um, I think I've felt empowered to call myself a playwright rather than to say I'm trying to be a playwright, probably since my first professional productions, which were in 2010. So... You know, somewhere between 20 and seven years. All right. So and, we got the window down.
1: And since, Leah, you are not in Maine or Ohio, where are you right now?
3: I am in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is where I live. I do most of my various jobs from home. So I'm hanging out at my desk with my dog right now.
1: Wait, there's a dog there?
3: There is a dog. She's very cute. What's, <laughs> yes. what's her name? Her name is Shelley. She's named after Mary Shelley. Ah! Hi, Shelley.
2: Welcome
1: to the podcast, Shelley. Shelly, it is really great to have you on at the table. Uh, we are dog lovers on at the table, and often our conversations devolve into talks of dogs. But uh, we will we will attempt to not go there. So, Leah, you wrote us uh, this awesome play, Ghost Story, which we had uh, the wonderful Carissa Harris and Andrew Mayer to read, and we were really stoked because one of the things we love to do on at the table is, especially because we have. Uh, the very talented, though not present on this call, Marcus Thorne-Bagala, uh, put together some cool music and some cool sound design, and we were really excited to try and do something that lives in kind of like a, a, a creepy-ish, like, like, you know, maybe it should have been an October play, but like a horror-ish, like a uh, creepy, thrillery yeah, moments.
3: Totally. I love the music. It was really cool. And I felt like it really, like, actually brought a lot to the play. I haven't seen this play fully produced, so I've seen several readings of it, but I hadn't seen it with music and with those sound effects like the you know the keys and the, the various like sounds that you got in there and just that whole dimension is such a big part of this play that it was really fun for me to just start thinking about that when i heard it and thinking about how that would play in a full production too
1: shout out to uh i believe i'll cut this if i'm wrong uh podcast favorite megan dorn who uh plays uh the ethereal creepy crying woman
2: yeah, she really, oh man. That mm-hmm. woman also has many talents.
1: Multi-talented woman. You last heard her on the podcast as Bernadette in uh, Stephen Carl McCaslin's play.
2: Uh, so Leah, can you tell us a little bit about where this piece came from?
3: So it's definitely still a piece that I'm still in progress with, I feel like. It is definitely not a finished draft, in my opinion. I think I started working on it last summer. I was doing a residency with a great company called One Company, where they just brought several writers to this house in New Jersey. And it's like this beautiful farmhouse in the woods. And we just hung out and wrote for four days. And that's basically where I wrote the first draft of it. And it was really, really bad, like so, so bad. But I got to the end, and I came up with this image of two people kissing with the boxes flying all around them. And I was like, you know, I really like that. So then I went back and basically did a page one rewrite trying to get to that image because that was the only thing I liked out of the first draft of the play. So it's been an evolution. I've done a couple of other page one rewrites since then, and I might do another one at this point just because this is the first time that I've ever written a two-hander, and I find it really challenging. Like, I tend to write a lot of plays with five characters because then there's sort of like an A story and a B story, and then there's a character that can just come in and destabilize everything in both those stories. And, like, that's something I know how to do, and it's something that works really easily for me. And for this, I was like, I really want to write a two-character play just because I have not done that. And it was so hard to give two people enough to do on a stage for me. So the first draft of the play was, like, 45 pages. <laughs> and you know, it's grown slightly since then, although I think there's probably still more that it could continue to grow
2: now uh, can we ned uh uh, forgive me let me make sure that i'm doing this the correct way because normally we talk about spoilers and things like that presuming that people have listened to the play but it's quite literally a ghost story so i want to make sure we're you should definitely listen to the play before you listen to this yeah
1: hey hey listeners if you are now you know eight minutes into this episode but you haven't listened to ghost story like take a pause go go back an episode
2: all right let's wait for those people to leave
1: Bye.
2: Now I want to know what's happening in this play in your mind, Leah. Like what's going, is this a ghost story? Is there a ghost? There's this beautiful piece of magical realism at the end, actually throughout, but like that we really see is not coincidental on the last page of this show. What's happening? Tell
3: me. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, And it actually is still a thing that I'm sort of figuring out, I think, because I have had the experience of, Some people have given me feedback that they're a little confused about what's up with the ghost and, you know, what the ghost represents at different times. And I think it's because I may be trying to make the ghost do too much work in the play. I don't know. But for me, it's a story about people being haunted and whether that haunting is literal or figurative. I don't know. And that's why having this story live in the theater works really well for me in that, you know, everything in the theater is sort of lives in that world between literal and figurative and where it lands exactly on that spectrum depends on what kind of play it is. So I don't know how much they are literally being haunted, but I think they are definitely both people who have these various tragedies or hardships in their past that are continuing to affect them to this day. Yeah. And I think that is what is so interesting and compelling about the idea of ghosts for people generally is this idea that the things that have happened to us don't just go away. And that, you know, is so true and everyone knows that. And I think ghosts are such a compelling image and fixture and, you know, in the stories of all of these different cultures because of the truth of that. So for me, it was really interesting to think about, like, what does that mean in the context of romantic relationships? What does that mean in the context of what can go on between two people? Because, when we get to a certain age, you know, none of us are going into romantic relationships fresh and dewy-eyed. We're all carrying all of this baggage from previous relationships with us. And that seemed like a really interesting sort of thing to combine with this idea of being haunted by a ghost.
2: One of the things that we've been hearing um, as a continuing refrain on the show is uh, non-playwriting as part of the playwright's job, the, how much of the job ends up being uh, synopses, but also uh, applications for workshops and fellowships, and uh, uh, applications for grant money and uh, program writing and production histories. Um, it sounds like you also do a lot of other types of writing, wearing your other hats. But can you talk a little bit about not just you know you mentioned the synopses, but um, how was that unexpected for you that you uh, do you do, find that you're doing a lot of sort of non theater writing in service of your of your playwriting?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's so true. You're saying that there's so much work that isn't writing that goes into being a playwright. Um, I would say that for me right now, it's less that I'm doing non theater writing in the service of playwriting, but it's that I'm doing other theater work in the service of playwriting. Like I work with a couple of different companies, one of them, Project Y Theater. I'm the associate artistic director and I run a playwrights group through that company. And then I work with Jersey City Theater Center, which is a company in downtown Jersey City, and I schedule new play readings for them. And then I just really try to make it a point to get out there and see shows and support my collaborators. And I'm also a company member within Violet Theater, which is another company that has a show running right now. So being involved in the theater community is very, very time consuming. And that's been a little bit of a surprise for me the past few years, because before that I didn't really do it. And then I started doing it and it's paying off and I'm getting more of my own work done and I'm making great connections and I've realized how much it's really all about connections and the people you know and the people you wanna be in a room with.
2: Right, absolutely. You said you were splitting your time between Providence and New York. Um, When you first came to New York, uh, was it in order to do the playwriting or was it in order to do the other theater work that you're discussing?
3: Yeah, no, it was was to do the writing. Um, So I went to grad school at Rutgers in New Jersey and then moved to Hoboken after I graduated because that was you know, close to the city and a place that I could afford to actually live. And it was very much because this felt like the place to do theater. Now, if I had to to do over, I might actually rethink that in that, you know, I, I go back and forth on this question because I love New York and I love how much there is going on in the theater scene in New York. And I think in that way, it makes it a really exciting and amazing place to do theater. But then on the other hand, because there's so much, it means we're all fighting for a limited audience and we're all, you know, it's very easy to get lost in all of the noise. Whereas in a smaller city, it might be easier to make more of an impact because there's not so much else going on. You know, at this point, my network is here. And so it makes sense for me to be here. And I know if I ever end up somewhere else, I will miss you know, the quantity and the energy and the quality of the theater that's here for the rest of my life. But there are also things that are appealing about potentially being other places.
2: Sure, just the different the different markets being a little bit more, well, less of a saturation point.
1: I find that super interesting. In, in my world, uh, <clears throat> throughout the table and just my own life, uh, I spend a lot of time with playwrights. I spend a lot of time with uh, uh, composers and librettists. I spend a lot of time with people who write theater. And a lot of them talk about this exact issue a lot where they say like you know the nice thing about playwriting hypothetically is that you could live somewhere and submit your plays back to new york but so much of it is networking so much of it is connection so much of it is face to face and then you but then you have the added bonus of if you're in one of those regional markets like maybe you create a relationship with a theater that like does your new works when you have them so you have like that added bonus of getting productions and i know a lot of people who talk about that a lot is like the, the the catch-22 of, like, there are certain aspects outside of New York that could particularly be helpful in a way that you have to fight for in New York, but what you have access to in New York is, like, not available anywhere else.
3: Yeah, that's so true, and in a way, actually, I do feel like being a New Jersey playwright, I get some of the best of both worlds, like, not all of it, but there's actually a very vibrant regional theater scene in New Jersey, yeah. and I work with quite a few companies in New Jersey as well as companies that I work with in New York. So I feel like I get some of that like being a regional playwright and also being a New York playwright, which is a nice combination.
2: Uh, can you talk a little bit about the show that you mentioned before with your theater company that's
3: gone up? I'm a company member with violet Theater and they have a show running right now. I'm not involved with it on an artistic level, but I will plug it because it's amazing. It's called Neighbors and it's by Bernardo Cubria. And it's an allegory of U.S.-Mexican relationships, but it's also just a hilarious sort of clown show, and it's very theatrical and absurd and funny and really a lot of fun. And that's a co-production with InViolet and Intar that's running through early October.
1: I'm sorry, and the company is InViolet or InViolet?
3: InViolet. So I-N-V-I-O-L-E-T, like InViolet, the color.
1: Uh, Leah, I'm super curious about your work as a novelist and humor writer. What is that?
3: No, that's not something I've done super recently, but it is something that I've done in my life. So, kind of think, maybe 2008, 2009, um, my brother and I had this idea for a humor book that we would write together. Um, There's a book that's out there called 14,000 Things to be Happy About. And a friend of mine had given me a copy of this book, and it's literally just a list of things to be happy about. And we were like, well, that's kind of a ridiculous thing to exist. But it would be funny if we wrote the opposite and wrote a list of things to be miserable about. So we came up with a query letter, pitched it to agents, ended up getting an agent immediately. And the agent was like, okay, great, send me your book proposal. And I had no idea what a book proposal was at that point. So I literally drove out to Barnes and Noble and wrote a, bought a book on how to write a book proposal, <laughs> wrote a book proposal, send it off to the agent. And we ended up getting a publisher really quickly for that and getting a book deal. So it's called 11,002 things to be miserable about. But um, from that experience, I felt like it wasn't that hard to publish a book, which, spoiler alert, is not actually true. But that sort of gave me the (laughs) confidence to decide to try writing a novel. And so six or seven years ago, I was newly single and dating a lot and reading a lot of chick lit, as one does when one's newly single and dating a lot, I guess. And I was reading a lot of books that were just not very good. And I was like, you know, I think I could probably do this better. So I decided to write a chick lit novel. And it's called Dating the Devil. And it's about a girl who meets the perfect guy. And then it turns out that he is literally the human incarnation of Satan. So she has to decide how to move forward, whether that's a deal breaker for her, or whether they're going to continue to date. That ended up getting published as well in 2013.
1: I know ex- exactly nothing about the book publishing world. So all of that is super fascinating to me. Who, uh, who, where can these books be found or who published them? I guess that's not an or, that's an and question.
3: So the first Humor book, 11,002 Things to Be Miserable About, is published by Abrams, and it can be found on Amazon. It was in Barnes & Noble and bookstores and all that. I don't know if it is so much anymore because it's a few years old, but it's definitely on Amazon, and the novel also can be found on Amazon, and it's published by Bell Books.
2: I'm pretty sure we can also get links to those up on the At The Table website. So if you're listening to this and want to check out Leah's uh, published works, feel free to go to our website, uh, which is At the Table podcastplay.com i don't know ned tell them the website
1: uh chargingmoosemedia.com slash at (laughs) the table podcast
2: exactly what i just said
1: uh rachel have you seen anything out in ohio that's been really exciting for you
2: so one of the things that i've been really fascinated about and i I think it's very cool that um you mentioned and, and identify as a jersey playwright leah because um i i've been really fascinated by um regional work in a new part of the country. Um, I have not, uh, I have never toured. um, So this is um, my first chance to do theater in the Midwest in a non-Chicago setting. Um, And I've been really fascinated by the support that these places have. First of all, this place that we're doing uh, the show at is the Human Race Theater Company Um, is Dayton's, it, it literally says Human Race Theater dayton's professional theater company and that's what they do they're the they're the equity theater in town and they everybody is is wildly supportive uh in town this is their theater company which obviously makes it um it changes things right because you have to stay afloat so there's a certain amount of new work versus work you're certain people are going to come to that i'm sure that they have to deal with i'm not in on any of those discussions but just watching it as a visitor it has been really fascinating to see a town that doesn't have a saturation point on theater, is so eager and excited about new work, but doesn't necessarily have um, a a ton of different places that you can choose from that are presenting new work. Um, They're also a big town for sit down national tours. Uh, They've got the Schuster Center here. So while we've been here, the Little Mermaid tours come through think, um, Finding Neverland is coming shortly, things like that. It's been really interesting to be in a town that has what they're, you know, it's a university town, a really thriving art scene, but with only a couple of really strong, well-resourced, well-financed, which is obviously like part, a big part of the equation, uh, places to put on theater, put on work. So that's been really, that's been fascinating as a visitor for sure. Um, are, are the places that you're working up in Maine, are these new places for you, Ned? Do you know, do you know the, I know you know the main, the theater scene quite well, but
1: yeah, so, I mean, I grew up here. So uh, I grew up with the Main State Music Theater and the Agunquit Playhouse and the Portland Stage Company. And uh, uh, I'm working for the theater at Monmouth, which in the summer is a equity rep company. They do, I think, five shows simultaneously all summer. Uh, and actually, uh, I saw a production of Learned Ladies here, uh, Moliere, this summer that was stunning. And I, I, I often, I'll admit, listeners of At The Table, and since a lot of our listeners are playwrights, please don't hate me, I don't tend to love Moliere. Um, it doesn't tend to sit well with me. And this production was just absolutely beautiful. And it, nice. it, uh, I saw it like two days after I saw a stunning production of Newsies at the Main State Music Theater. And then like two days later, I saw a stunning production of Ragtime at the Agunquit Playhouse. So I had this week of like unbelievable regional theater um, at very different establishments. Um, the show I'm doing, Peter and the Starcatcher, is after their equity season has closed. They always do a non-union show to finish out their year. Um And uh, so in 2012, when I was non-union, I actually did Of The I Sing Up Here, which is how I I got to know the theater in the first place. But I agree. And and I'm actually super curious because I've spent no time in the Jersey theater scene, Leah. And so what I'm curious about is, like, in Maine, at least, like, the theater community, you know, there's always the fight for audiences. You know, the state only has a little over a million people across the whole state. And it's uh, pretty surprisingly big state so there's not a huge audience base and people are constantly fighting each other for audiences but it's also really communal in terms of like sharing resources and uh, making sure that people's seasons don't conflict with other people's seasons and and seeing each other's shows and sharing sharing props and uh, actors and um, I'm curious about what the Jersey theater scene is like is it super um, entwined with the with the New York scene or do the Jersey do the Jersey theaters tend to, to live in their own kind of, kind of uh, uh, market and then New York people sometimes join, but it's kind of more of like the way regional theater would work in maybe Dayton, Ohio or, or Maine?
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely its own market, but has the advantage of having access to the acting and directing and writing and design pool in New York. In terms of audiences, I think the audiences do tend to be separate. I mean, I think New Jersey audiences will come into New York and see shows here and there for sure I don't know how much it really ever goes the other direction um, that I think is definitely trickier
1: huh do you think that there's a there's a, 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 a do you think it's harder with an audience that has access to to Broadway in the back door do you think a lot of audiences are like well I go to two theater shows a year so I'm gonna go to New York or do you think that it like because it's such a theatrical hub in the general area that Jersey has it's like really dedicated audience base
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure, but my feeling is that it feels like separate things. Like, there's definitely, you know, in the same way that going to a Broadway show and going to an off-Broadway or an off-off-Broadway show feel like separate things, you're not necessarily going to a regional theater show for the same reasons that you would go to a Broadway show. Maybe you are. I mean, it probably depends on the theater. But my feeling is that especially a lot of the smaller regional theaters or the ones that do new work, like their audiences are not going to see that instead of going to see Broadway, they are going to see it for different reasons.
1: As you're looking at, at theater as a whole right now, like either New York, Jersey, regional, uh, as a playwright submitting to festivals, I'm always fascinated about like what it's like to submit your plays to various places and how do you get yourself seen. But is there something that's happening in theater that, that excites you as a trend, either from a, a writing standpoint or from a, a, an audience standpoint? Like, is there something about theater right now that like you're seeing that's new?
3: That's a really good question. Um... I think something that's a general trend that's really exciting is a trend towards greater representation of underrepresented voices. And that's, you know, a huge thing that's happening in the field right now. And I love that. I'm excited about that. I feel like we're hearing stories from people whose stories we have not traditionally heard. And that's great.
2: I would love to stop us on underrepresented voices because, um, there is, uh, you know, it's it's funny, I think that when you spend a lot of your life doing theater and new, new theater or otherwise, um, like any industry, you can sort of uh, live in, in an information bubble and think that there are there are big things happening that everyone surely must be aware of but that are actually more important for the people also in theater. Um, one of the things that's been happening recently is a conversation uh, based in regional work and Correctly uh, casting for race, race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a couple of instances in the last few weeks that people have been very aware of. There's one very prominent regional theater that is doing a production that is uh, of a show that is objectively based in ethnicity. Um, there's also another production abroad of a show about essentially the Latin experience, um, and uh, both of these places have come under fire for. Essentially, whitewashing their casts, um, and I've been. Uh, uh, while this is always problematic, and and I'm I'm comfortable calling it problematic. I, if we're not in agreement, at least you know, let's let's start there. Hopefully, um, but one of the things I've been most fascinated by is in a changing theater community, the people still willing to play devil's advocate in these conversations, the 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 fears or the kind of shifting nature of as. Shows even regionally become less about the white experience or uh, less about kind of canon shows. Uh, who's still willing to say, well, how do we watch out for how we're properly representing stories?
1: I uh, I tend to live in the, the lap of privilege in this industry. I'm a, a straight white guy who who sings tenor music when doing musicals. And has a couple of skill sets that aren't necessarily very common when doing straight plays. So, like, uh, it's always kind of been true in my experience that I can walk into most auditions, and there's probably at least one role for me. Um, and that's that is like a fact of the industry that I've been acutely aware of and taken advantage of as a uh, a member of the industry trying to build a career. But I, I've often said and I've often talked about with some of my very close friends like I I quite honestly a can't imagine what it's like to be female in this industry because uh brutal but also like I can't imagine what it would be like to be like a a musical theater actress primarily who is um female and Asian like It's my friends who are have so much trouble getting seen for things that are remarkably non-racially specific because somehow it's, you know, people are like, well, you must be trying to go in for an Asian role. And it's like, what does that even mean? Most roles aren't written for anything. And then there's really only a, a, a few prominent Uh, musicals that have roles for Asian women. And I've just, like, I can't imagine. And so as I've seen these conversations, like, it's excited me because, one, like, uh, we don't need to keep hearing from dudes like me. We've had 600 years of theater from us. Uh, And also because people that I love and adore and unbelievable talents are starting to get uh, into rooms that very uh, sadly seemed closed even just a few years ago.
2: Well, we're actually, since you mentioned a friend who is uh, female and Asian, I want to give a shout-out today to uh, a brand-new musical, um, K-pop, is happening. It's at Ars Nova. Uh, It's also in combination with um, Ma Yi Theater and the Woodshed Collective. Uh, I I don't have all of the uh, creative team uh, in front of me, but Max Vernon is one of the folks who, and Helen Park did Music and Lyrics, book by Jason Kim. They've got a brand-new musical, it's got 18 people in the cast, and 17 are Asian and Asian American. Wow. Um, it's huge, and and uh, I think that you you bring up a really good point because uh, uh, among the the sort of uh, casting breakdown, uh, Desert. Uh, th- these are the folks who tend to have it the lousiest in contemporary musical theater. So, and it's also supposed to be beyond that and separate from that. It's supposed to be ridiculously good. So, yo, it a,
1: looks so good.
2: If you get a chance, go check out K-pop. I think they run through October, like the week of the seventh, um, at ours, Nova, obviously, uh, a place to always continue seeing cool theater get its moment in the sun. I mean, this is where great comic came from. This is where any number of cool shows have come out of. So,
1: also, um, it just so everyone knows, I, it is sold out uh, for the rest of its run. They are no, expecting hey. to extend, uh, and uh, apparently wait lists have been getting in every single day.
2: Oh, awesome. Well, still, still go, guys. That's awesome. Um, uh, anyway, you brought up a really good point with that, which is uh, uh, that we're just seeing a shifting industry when, it, uh, as actors, um, but also as writers, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very good thing but I'm really fascinated by sort of the limitations of allyship that this is exposing in the industry, which doesn't always feel really great. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't feel great on a personal level when you recognize that there's a limit to how passionate you want to be because it means you're out of work, you know, it's a tough moment, but we're seeing folks who talk a good game on Facebook and show up for the marches and X, Y, Z, but who also don't see a problem with, you know, white folks in, for example, Evita or In the Heights or one of these shows. And, and it really does sort of, uh, I think, shine a light on an important but not very comfortable piece of what's happening right now, which is people identifying how they can be supportive even when there is uh, perhaps a negative impact or at least not a positive impact on their own lives. I mean, that's what true allyship is. And anyway, I'm curious about seeing this as it keeps moving forward. I think the conversations have been really hard and really good um, and will continue to be really hard. but something that's definitely undeniable that's going on in the, in, in the New York scene and, and around the country right now.
1: Leah, I don't know your 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 own background so I can't really speak to it and you're welcome to speak to it as much as, or as little as possible. but how are you kind of entering that sphere like how are you trying how are you working towards representing voices that are traditionally underrepresented? like how is it as a playwright looking at this trend that's a good thing and finding your own legroom in it?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different things that I'm sort of trying to do in my own work and also in my, you know, advocacy work with other writers. And I think there's a lot more that I can and should be doing. And I'm, you know, in the process of discovering and learning about and figuring out. Um, In my own work, I've started trying to make it a point to write characters of color more often, just to give work to actors of color, essentially. And, to tell those kinds of stories and to, and and it's a thing I go back and forth on. And I, I don't know because obviously like that informs the character's experience in ways that sometimes I do have experience of sometimes I don't. And so I need to be more careful as a writer when I'm doing that. And that's harder. And sometimes I think I probably get it wrong and sometimes I don't. And you know, it's more of a challenge to do that. Um, And then sometimes I feel like maybe I don't have the right to be doing that. And maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And other times I feel like, well, it's really important for everybody to be trying to do that. So that's a thing that I'm still in the process of working through and trying to figure out. But it's a thing that I've become a lot more conscious of in that up until, I don't know, probably four or five years ago, I just didn't write in ethnicity to my scripts at all, typically. And Now, sometimes I still don't, and then I'll put in a note that it would be great to cast with a diverse cast. But I think coming from a place of privilege, I was just, you know, not really thinking about it, like not thinking about it as a major component of someone's experience in the world. And so I wasn't writing it into a script. And it's become increasingly more and more clear to me that that is not actually a reasonable way to write in the world that we live in. So that's something that I'm very much still in the process of working on and thinking about Um, in terms of working with other writers. It's something that I think about in terms of this playwrights group that I run through project Y theater. And it's something that I still need to continue doing better, I think, but it's something I've become more and more conscious of over the years in that the first year we ended up with a lot of white guys in the group and we ended up with some women and some people of color, but the representation was not what I wanted it to be. And so, over the years, I've just been working on sort of identifying writers who, because we don't do a totally open call for scripts, we do a targeted call for scripts from people in our network. And so I'm making more of an effort to identify women writers and writers of color and writers from different backgrounds. And it's not all the way there yet, but I think it's getting closer.
2: Leo, I can't tell you how thrilled we were to get to do Ghost Story. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking a little bit about your work. Uh, thank you for letting us uh, do your work.
1: Rachel, there's one more question we have to ask, Leah. You I know that, right? I can't
2: believe I forgot. And you know why I forgot? It's because I've been snacking c- through this entire interview because it's on Skype. As opposed play, oh. like, I normally remember to ask this because I'm so snacky. But Uh,
1: Rachel, before we ask the question, what are you snacking on?
2: Oh, so you should know this for recording purposes, but it started with pie and then I had some baby carrots and now I have an apple uh, from an orchard. You know, living in America's breadbasket for a month and a half has been pretty damn satisfying. Leah, the reason we're talking about food is there is a at the table tradition wherein we ask folks their favorite snack i think it's the most crucial question we ask every time so do you have a favorite snack whether you're when you're writing or just in general
3: That is a great question. Um, I like a lot of different snacks. I'm like you, I eat snack pretty much 24-7. Like my husband makes fun of me because I'm literally always eating at all times. Um, But I love snacking on baby carrots. Those are always in my fridge. And whenever I'm just sort of bored or stuck on something, I just go over and eat them. Um, All of the different Trader Joe's gummy snacks and chocolate, various things, chocolate covered almonds, chocolate covered mints chocolate covered recess pieces like all of those things are pretty much in constant rotation also
2: fabulous that's a good mix you got some healthy you got some some trader joe snacking things that's yeah it's balanced. yeah fabulous well thank you so much for joining us today thank you for making me want to go back to the baby carrot so now i'm switching back
3: <laughs>
2: really appreciate that and uh once again if you like any more information on leah on her on her plays on her books uh, on the podcast, feel free to check out our website, which Ned is about to tell us one more time
1: www.chargingmoosemedia.com/slash/at-the-table-podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at at-the-table-plays. We're on Facebook as well. Uh, we aren't on Instagram, but my production company is, so at Charging Moose on Instagram. That's where you'll find all the 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 uh, pictures of things from At the Table. Plus, uh, we've got a web series coming out soon, and y'all should check it out. It's a rock musical about vampire slayers. Uh, season one available now. Season two coming soon. The Hunted Encore. Uh, what was the, there was one more thing I was going to say, Rachel, and it's gone.
2: If it was, if you are a major distributor of baby carrots and you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, uh, feel free to also check out our website. We'd love to have you. We'd love to be at the table podcast sponsored by baby by big baby carrots.
1: Big baby carrots. Oh, uh, also everybody listening, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe. Subscribe's the big one. And please, if you like our show, stay tuned for our next play coming up in October. And uh, uh, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is how we build our audience and it has grown uh, every time we release a play. And we are so excited to the new listeners who are joining us uh, for their first time on Ghost Story. And uh, we hope you'll continue to tell people to to check out our podcast because word of mouth is huge
2: thanks guys thank you so much leah thank you thank you
3: guys so much this was fun
1: all right so long all bye
0: this episode was produced by charging moose media telling great stories through new media this episode was edited by Ned Donovan. Mixing and sound design by Marcus Pagala. Original music by Marcus as well. As always, our hosts are Rachel Flynn and Ned Donovan. Make sure to check out our website, chargingmoosemedia.com, for more info about the playwright. As always, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Every Tiny Bit helps us secure funding and support so we can continue to bring you new plays to listen to. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time.